Great to greet you. Thanks for making worship a priority this weekend. I want to welcome all the folks joining us online. It's so great to have you as a part of our service. Grab a Bible wherever you are and go with me to the Gospel of Matthew and the 26th chapter as we continue to work our way verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew. I want to uh, mention while you're turning there that next weekend is a very special weekend at Mount Pleasant. We're actually going to push the pause button and take a, a one-week break from the Gospel of Matthew to celebrate change for a dollar. Next weekend, we will hit a significant milestone in the number of dollars that have been given to change for a dollar and given away since the inception of this ministry. And we've got a very, very special service planned. There will be a lot of uh, joy, a lot of celebration. I want to encourage you to make sure that you're here next weekend. I appreciate the way uh, my son Andrew filled the pulpit for me last weekend. I was traveling Saturday night. Sandy and I were traveling Saturday night, but we were home Sunday morning. We were able to be here at 915 uh, to listen to the message. I thought it was a great message, and what a powerful time of communion together last weekend. Well, this weekend, as we pick up our text in verse 31 of Matthew chapter 26, we're going to see a very fast-moving passage of Scripture that focuses on Peter and some really poor choices he made on the night when Jesus desperately needed his loyalty and his support. And as a result, and we're going to see this in just a moment when we read the Scriptures, Peter was left at the end of it all, overwhelmed with great sorrow and great regret. And that reminds me of a quote that I'm sure many of us can relate to this morning. It comes from the mystery writer Agatha Christie, who once said, one doesn't recognize the really important moments of life until it's too late. One doesn't recognize the really important moments of life until it's too late. And I'm certain Peter would agree with those words because on one of, if not the most important night of his life, Peter failed Jesus spectacularly. And not just once, but he failed Jesus multiple times. We're going to see that on four separate occasions, Peter had the opportunity to do the right thing, and each time he failed. And that makes me want to ask this question to myself and to all of us tonight, or this morning rather. Have you ever been there? You ever found yourself in a situation where you know the right thing to do, but in the heat of the moment you did just the opposite or you did nothing at all, and as the moment passes you realize that you have failed? You have failed to live up to the reality of your faith? You have failed to live up to the life that God has clearly called you to live? I'm sure we all have. I know very few believers who, if they were honest, would not say that they've experienced this kind of a failure, at least on some level in their life. I've certainly failed in my life and in my faith multiple times. And while I could tell you my own stories, I don't want to spend our time doing that. I would rather look at Peter's story this morning and focus on finding some practical things from his story that might help us avoid failure altogether. Our text this morning is a little daunting, or at least it seems that way at first glance. It's Matthew chapter 26, verse 31, all the way down to the end of the chapter, which is verse 75, but I'm not going to have us read all of it together. We're just going to read a portion, and because we've got a lot to talk about, we're going to dive right in. So if you've got your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 26 and you're able, go ahead and stand with me for the public reading of the Scripture. Matthew chapter 26 Verses 31 through 75 is our text, but we're just going to read together in this part of our service the most familiar part of this passage, and that's verse 69 down through verse 75. You follow along as I read. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. 
But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you are one of them for your accent gives you away. And then he began to call down curses on himself and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately, a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. All right, there it is. You can be seated. We always ask for God's blessing on the reading and the hearing of his word. Now, here's why I chose that final portion of our text for the public reading of Scripture. One of the absolute strongest messages of the Bible is that God, because of his love and his grace and his mercy, offers forgiveness to people who fail. Somebody say amen to that this morning. But the Bible also teaches us that we don't have to fail in our lives. I know none of us are perfect, but I want you to think about something with me this morning. We don't have to fail in our lives, there are steps we can take if we pay attention to the Scriptures to avoid failure altogether. I believe we see that in Peter's story. Let me say it like this. The Bible teaches us that you can attack failure before failure attacks you. Think of it like this. Just like sickness doesn't creep into your body without some kind of a warning along the way, neither does failure. You just have to pay attention to the warning signs. And what we're going to see this morning is that as Peter was moving toward the single greatest moment of failure in his life, the moment when he denied even knowing Jesus, there were warning signs, there were red flags everywhere. But because Peter and his pride and his stubbornness failed to recognize and respond to those warning signs and those red flags, he failed Jesus in such a spectacular way that Matthew 26 ends with the words, and he went outside and wept bitterly. And so what I want to do this morning, and I'm going to try to do it as quickly as possible, is we're just going to begin there in verse 31, and we're going to work our way verse by verse through the text and try to learn from Peter's mistakes. If you like to take notes, let's just start from the beginning. Right down next to number one, the first mistake Peter made was he was overconfident. He was overconfident. And I'm going to go back to where our text begins in verse 31 and read through verse 35. Follow along. Then Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. This very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Notice from the very beginning that Jesus was not focusing his attention or his words on Peter alone. He said this to all of the disciples. He said, this very night you will all fall away on account of me. Remember, Andrew told us last week that according to John's gospel, by this time, Satan has already entered into Judas and he's already left the disciples to go out and set in motion the betrayal of Jesus. But here Jesus is speaking to all of the 11 remaining disciples. He says, this very night you will all fall away on account of me. And here's the deal. They did. Every one of them did. We know about Peter because we just read his story. 
But in addition, after Jesus was arrested, and we'll get there in just a few minutes, we see in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 56, these words, then all the disciples, all of them deserted him and fled. But even though Jesus was speaking to all the disciples, it was Peter who felt compelled to speak up. And so he says in verse 33, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. And since Peter was the first one to speak up, Jesus responds directly to him. And in effect, he says, and this is a paraphrase, he says, yes, you will. Yes, you will, Peter. And this is exactly how you're going to do it. Before the rooster crows, you'll disown me three times. And what does Peter do in that moment? In light of that, in light of hearing those words from Jesus, a man who spoke with an authority like no one who had ever lived before, what does Peter do? He doubles down. And in verse 35, he says, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples in unison said the same Peter wasn't the only one who failed that night because all the disciples abandoned Jesus, but Peter's failure gets the most coverage, and rightly so because of his ultimate denial of Jesus. And listen to me, friends, it all started with overconfidence, all of it. And so here's the lesson that we need to learn. When we think about how to attack failure before failure attacks you, here's the lesson. Anytime you think or anytime you say, that will never be me or that will never happen to me, look out. That's a gigantic red flag in your life. You know, Thursday of this past week, I went to see my radiation oncologist. This month marks the eighth anniversary of the completion of my treatment for tonsil cancer. When I was going through that treatment, my doctor prescribed for me some pretty significant pain pills, those prescription pain pills that we're all familiar with. You know all the names of those things. And I took some of those pills from the beginning because I was in a lot of pain going through that treatment. But let me tell you something. In the back of my mind, as I was taking those pills, all I could think about was a man that I knew who was the pastor of a megachurch in Florida who injured himself, went to the doctor, and part of his treatment was being prescribed the very same pills that I was taking. And he got addicted to those pain pills. And that addiction to those pain pills led to an addiction to an even deeper level of drug use. And all I could think about was how that man ultimately lost his church and almost lost his family. And so I stopped taking those pills because I thought if that could happen to him, that could happen to anyone. I knew the man. I knew the kind of man that he was. And I thought to myself over and over again, if that could happen to him, it could happen to anyone. Let me tell you something. Write this down somewhere. Overconfidence can be a killer when it comes to your spiritual life. Overconfidence can be a killer when it comes to your spiritual life. That's why Paul wrote what he did in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12. He wrote and said, so... If you think you are standing firm, be careful that you do not what? Say it. Fall. When you think you're standing firm, that's when you need to put your guard up the most because that's when you think you're invincible. But be careful so that's not the moment when you fall. And you know what the very next thing Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 10? The very next words after, so if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. He wrote these words, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. What does that mean? It means that... We live in a world filled with moral depravity. We live in a world filled with sin-inducing pressure, pressure, and we need to understand that there is no temptation or no wrong desire that can't happen to us because they happen to everyone. And you can't be overconfident. And so here's the bottom line for all of us as believers. 
While every believer should feel assurance about the love of God and while every believer should feel assurance about the forgiveness of God and about eternal life and things like that, I also believe that every believer, me at the top of the list, should never say, this would never happen to me. Even if it happens to everyone else, this will never happen to me. We should never be overconfident when it comes to our practical spiritual life. We can face the future with confidence. We can face adversity with confidence. We can even face temptation with confidence. But that confidence needs to come from Christ. It needs to come from our relationship with Christ and not in our own strength and our own ability. And that's the mistake Peter made. He was overconfident in himself because he had the attitude, this could never happen to me. And that, friends, is a dangerous way to live when it comes to your spiritual life. A dangerous way to live. Right down next to number two, the second mistake Peter made. He was undisciplined. And I'm going to go back to the text. I'm going to pick it up in verse 36 and read down through verse 46. Follow along. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. That's James and John, by the way. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Listen, if the first red flag for Peter was overconfidence, the second red flag for Peter was a lack of discipline. After Peter and the rest of the disciples insisted they would never fall away, they left with Jesus to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Many of you who have been with me to the Holy Land on three different trips have been in the Garden of Gethsemane. You can probably visualize it in your mind as I'm talking to you this morning. So they left with Jesus to go to the Garden of Gethsemane where, they would, where he would pray, rather. And when they got there, what Jesus did was he left eight of the disciples in one place and he took only three of them, Peter, James, and John, because they were the closest disciples to him. They were a part of his inner circle. He took them with him. And the text says that Jesus began to feel sorrowful and troubled. The, the text even says Jesus speaks these words, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Now, I want to just pause here for a moment because I think this is significant. This idea of Jesus alone with Peter, James, and John and saying these words, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. I don't know if you ever saw the movie, The Passion of the Christ or not. It came out several years ago now and probably for many of you, you've seen it multiple times. But there is... In the movie, this scene, Jesus with Peter, James, and John in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
And when Jesus walks away from them to go and pray alone, in the movie, Peter turns to James and John and says these words. He says, I've never seen him like this before. Now, up to that point, they had seen Jesus in a variety of settings, and they had seen Jesus meet every challenge and every problem and every event in his life with confidence and power. Whether it was feeding the 5,000, whether it was calming the storm, whether it was performing a supernatural healing, they'd seen Jesus respond with confidence and power at every moment. Yeah, they saw Jesus standing outside of the tomb of his dear friend Lazarus, absolutely crushed with grief because Lazarus had died. But in the end, they saw him respond to that in faith and in power as he brought Lazarus back to life. But this is different. In this setting, they'd never seen Jesus like this before. And even though that line came from the imagination of the screenwriter, it is believable. It is believable. Because in this moment, in the deepest part of who Jesus was from a human standpoint, in his soul, he felt crushed with grief at the knowledge of what was about to happen to him. And so he responded like any of us would. He got his closest friends And he took them with him, and he said to them, stay here and keep watch with me. He was saying to them, I don't want to be alone in this moment, because how many of you know that when you're overwhelmed with sorrow and you're overwhelmed with grief, one of the most common feelings and emotions that you have is you feel all alone in the world, even if you're surrounded by lots of people. And that's how Jesus felt in that moment. And that's where the next warning, that's where the next red flag shows up. It shows up in a lack of discipline because when Jesus goes away and prays that agonizing prayer, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. He does that believing that he's not all alone in this moment. He does that believing that his three closest friends are not just with him, they're with him in the moment. But what happens? Three times in the middle of his praying, he returns to find the disciples asleep. And how discouraging was it, you think, for Jesus to come back that third time and have to say, this is verses 45 and 46 again, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. And in my heart, I believe that Judas was not the only betrayer there in that moment. Think about that from the perspective of Jesus' personal humanity. He didn't want to be alone. In that sorrow and that grief, he needed his friends. He needed Peter and James and John to be in the moment with him. But when, they need, when he needed them the most, they couldn't muster the discipline to stay awake. And here's the lesson. When we become undisciplined, and friends, let's just call it what it is. When we become lazy, we open the door to failure in our lives. When we become lazy with regard to our spiritual lives, we open the door to failure in our spiritual lives. When I talk about discipline, I mean being committed to do the right thing, especially when it doesn't come to us naturally or it doesn't come easily. And let's be honest, a lot of the things that we need to do to guard ourselves, spiritually speaking, don't come to us naturally or easily. 
You know, as much as I love the Bible, and I do, and as much as I love talking to God, a daily quiet time has never come easily to me. And here's why. Honestly, here's why. Because it requires discipline. But there are times in our lives when we have to exercise discipline to do what we know is right to strengthen and protect ourselves. I have so much admiration and so much respect for the Apostle Paul and his New Testament letters because he was always vulnerable about this reality. And I think about <clears throat> how he ended, <clears throat> excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and a section of Scripture where he's talking about how every, every believer needs to be like a runner who runs in the race with the goal of finishing the race, of crossing the finish line, of not dropping out, of not being disqualified along the way. That's the context that he's writing about. And then he writes these words in verse 27, 1 Corinthians 9, 27. He says, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. And so here's Paul, this spiritual giant, this absolute spiritual giant, this man who'd had the most dramatic conversion experience in the history of the world, this man who was a powerful preacher and teacher and evangelist and church planter and missionary and mentor and many other things is making himself vulnerable and saying, listen, even I have to make sure that I have the discipline to do all the right things so that I don't mess it all up in the end. If you find yourself living an undisciplined life when it comes to your spiritual life, then you need to understand that's a gigantic red flag for you because you're probably on a path to failure. Don't let that happen. Right down next to number three, the third mistake Peter made. He was impulsive. I'm going to pick it up in verse 47. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man, is the man. arrest him. Go, going at once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, friend, do what you came for. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. And with that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? And at that time, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you did not arrest me, but this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then, as I mentioned earlier, all the disciples deserted him and fled. The third red flag that showed up in Peter's life was the red flag of impulsiveness. After he finished praying, Judas, along with the Roman soldiers, came to arrest him. And this is where Judas identifies Jesus with a kiss. And after that happened... As one of the soldiers stepped out to take Jesus, Peter pulls a sword and strikes one of the men cutting off his ear. I know Matthew doesn't identify that person as Peter, but John's gospel does. It was Peter who drew the sword or the knife and cut off the man's ear. Now, someone 
might read that story and view what Peter did as an act of courageous loyalty. But I want everyone to listen to me really close. That would be a mistake. What Peter did was an act of impulse. And it fits with the entire theme of the text. Because what we've done is we've seen him going from being overconfident to being undisciplined and now to being impulsive. He did what he did without any thought to what was happening. He did what he did without any thought to the fact that Jesus has already told he and the other disciples on four separate occasions that this was what was going to happen. And so this can't be a surprise. When you sow seeds of overconfidence and you sow seeds of a lack of discipline, you're going to reap impulsive behaviors and impulsive actions. That's why at the end of our text, we see Peter's impulsiveness carried out to an extreme because in the heat of the moment, just like that moment when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus, he speaks up and denies that he even knows who Jesus is. And we make a mistake, friends, if we just sit here and look at this story and shake our heads and wonder how Peter could be so stupid because this exact same scenario can work its way out in your life and mine. If when it comes to our spiritual lives, we're overconfident, or overconfident rather to the extent, expect, uh, extent rather of believing that we're immune to failure, if we're undisciplined to the point where we don't take the time that we need to build and live spiritual lives, then in the end, we're going to be slaves to every impulse that comes along. And when those impulses are things like anger or rage or deceit or lust, then we need to understand that they have the power to destroy our lives. And so the best way to avoid this third red flag is to pay a Attention to the first two. That means we need to be humble, not overconfident, and understand that we're not immune from any temptation the world has to offer, and we need to practice discipline in our lives so that we can have the strength and resolve to avoid impulsive actions. Those are the right choices that all of us as Christians need to make every single day. And in the end, it just comes down to this level of simplicity, the best way to avoid doing wrong when you feel like doing wrong is to do what's right even when you don't feel like doing what's right. I'm not trying to oversimplify it, but think about the logic in those words. The best way to avoid doing wrong when you feel like doing wrong is to do what's right even when you don't feel like doing what's right. Let me give you a fourth mistake. And honestly, how could it have been anything else? Right down to next, next to number four, he was vulnerable. I know we already read this text, so we won't read it again. This is now verses 69 through 75. When you follow the progression of Peter's night, you see his overconfidence. You see his lack of discipline. You see his impulsiveness. How could there have been any other ending? Is it sad? Yes. Is it tragic? Absolutely. Is it heartbreaking? Certainly it is. But how could it have ended any other way? Peter set himself up for failure because by this point in the evening, Peter has no spiritual center in his life. He's operating by the flesh, by his own power, and that wasn't enough. That will never be enough. That will never be enough for Peter. It will never be enough for any of you. It will never be enough for me. Now, there's a section here in Matthew 26 that I'm going to skip over for the most part and come back and preach about the next time we're together, but... Let's look at a brief part of it. It's, it begins in verse 57. Look with me at verses 57 and 58. 
Those who had arrested, had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. And then we go from there down to verse 69 where we read in the beginning. And when we go to verse 69, I want to show you just how vulnerable Peter had become at this point in the evening. He was so vulnerable that in the end, he was undone and exposed by a servant girl. Think about that for a moment. A servant girl. What Peter was doing in following Jesus at a distance was really pretty brave and courageous. And I don't have any doubt in my mind that as Peter was following Jesus at a distance, he was preparing himself mentally for the fact that he might encounter some kind of confrontation, even a physical confrontation, for being in the courtyard of the high priest. And I'm sure that Peter was prepared to respond to that. But he wasn't prepared for a servant girl. And it's because of what I said earlier. At this point in the evening, he has no spiritual center. He's operating totally in the flesh, totally on his own strength, and that wasn't enough. You know, that makes it so interesting that so many years later, friends, so many years later in Peter's life, he wrote these words in his first epistle, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone, what? Read it with me, to devour Peter wrote those words because Peter lived those words in the courtyard of the high priest. The devil is a lot of things, but one thing he's not is stupid. And he knows that while we might be prepared for an obvious temptation and while we might be prepared for an obvious seduction, we're not always prepared for the things that seem small and non-threatening in our lives. And so in the end, Peter was undone and exposed by a servant girl because her simple question led to his first denial and opened the gate for more because then another girl saw Peter and said, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. And this time he denied knowing Jesus with an oath, a Jewish oath in Jesus' day, was always assumed to be made in God's presence. What does that mean? That means that even if Peter, in making that oath, didn't mention the name of God, what he was doing was he was basically calling on God himself to be a witness to his lie. It would be like you and me saying, as God, as my witness, I don't know the man. And then multiple people spoke up. Surely you're one of them, for your accent gives you away. And now Peter calls down curses on himself, himself and swears, I don't know the man. And then immediately Matthew says, the rooster crowed. And I want you to listen. And if you don't remember anything else I said today, remember this. I want you to pay close attention to what happened next. Matthew writes, this is verse 75, then, after the rooster crowed, then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. And that leads me to want to ask you this question. What do you think the outcome of this night would have been for Peter? What would the outcome of Peter's words and actions, what would it have been 
if on this night before he was overconfident and before he was lazy and undisciplined, before he was impulsive, before he denied that he knew Jesus, he would have remembered the word that Jesus had spoken. He would have remembered, for example, these words that Jesus had spoken in the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. What would have happened? What would have been the outcome of Peter's life that night if he'd remembered all the words that Jesus had spoken about humility and all the words that Jesus had spoken about trust and all the words that Jesus had spoken about peace and all the words that Jesus had spoken about a lack of vengeance and I could go on and on and on. There's a reason why Psalm 119 and 11 says, your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. But in the end, Peter failed. And the very last time we read anything about him at all in Matthew's gospel, we read these words. And he went outside and wept bitterly. What a sad, sad story. But we have to end with some good news. And Brian and the team can come. And the good news is, and I'm sure most, if not all of you know this, Jesus in the end forgave Peter. And in the end, he forgave Peter, I think, at least I tell myself, because I believe that the tears Peter shed after his denial were tears of repentance. And so Jesus forgave him. We know it's true because in Mark's gospel, when he writes his account of the resurrection, we read something that we don't read in any of the other gospels. When the women came to the tomb on that Sunday morning and found it empty, they also found an angel. And one of the things the angel said to them is recorded in Mark 16 and verse 7. The angel said, but go tell his disciples and Peter. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. Then you will see him. Just as he told you. Now, I don't have time for a detailed explanation. But Mark's gospel was written by John Mark. And there's a lot said about him in the scriptures. You read about him in the book of Acts in particular. But he wasn't one of the original 12. He wasn't there with Jesus. He didn't have a first-hand eyewitness account of Jesus' life. So how was it that Mark came to write this gospel of Jesus' life? How was it? It's widely believed by students and scholars of the Bible that Mark wrote his gospel based on his personal relationship with Peter. And so when Peter was telling Mark the story of the resurrection, he gave him these words. But go... Tell his disciples and Peter. He is going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see him, just as I told you. 
And I want to leave you with this night, this morning, friends. Just as God, just as Jesus was willing to forgive Peter in the face of his failure, he's willing to forgive you in the face of yours as well. Whoever you are, wherever you've been, no matter what you've done, the only thing you have to do, the only thing, is you have to come to him with an honest and an open and a humble heart. And you'll receive his forgiveness. I want you to pray with me. Thank you, Lord, for the, the chance to look at Peter's life. Thank you that you don't hide the mistakes and the flaws and the failures of your people, your, even your closest followers in the scriptures, because we need to see them up close and personal and learn from them and help us to learn this one lesson today. We don't have to fail in our lives. Not if we pay attention. Not if we pay attention. Help us to notice the warning signs and the red flags. And Father, if there is someone here who has failed, someone listening to me online who has failed, help them to know today that you offer complete forgiveness. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.